run at it shouting. Dooski says, run at it shouting. All right. Is it all right to, to get going, Mike? Can I, can I start? That's entirely up to you. Great, because there's plenty of hands here already. Um, I'm going to start with, with Lewis. Hold on. You need to unmute yourself. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Hi, Mike. Um, Hi. I, I wanted to ask about... Um, I can see people who I know. Sorry. I wanted to ask about um, the, the, some of the more characterised parts. Um, thinking about like, Gary Oldman in Meantime and uh, the couple in Nuts and May. How... Um, how uh, I, I'm interested in the journey from script to uh, film and how the actor informs that, how uh, sort of set are those roles? Because obviously they're quite outlandish, quite uh, particular oh, to the character. What, what's your name? Because it doesn't Lewis. say the oh. same name. <laughs> I'm on my girlfriend's Zoom. My name's Lewis. Okay. Lewis, okay, Lewis, right, sorry. Um, well, uh, it's a big question you're asking me, obviously. Um, the thing is, when you say, when you said at the beginning of the question, the more, character, the more characterized roles, and then you mentioned three of them, so far as I'm concerned, no character in any of my films is any more characterized than any other character, because... All, it's all about character acting. It's all about actors not playing themselves, not just doing that kind of acting which we know exists, where you just make you and how you are, how the character is. It's very much about character acting. It's very much about um, creating a character and then finding a way of building that character, building the characterization. And that applies right across the board. So, with respects, um, Coxie in Meantime, played by Gary Oldman, and Keith and Candice Marie in Nuts in May, are no more or less characterised than any other character in any of my films. I suppose... To answer the actual question... Sorry, go on. I suppose to just to find what I, what, I was say, what I mean is that I can't envisage like a character like Coxie, I can't really imagine reading it in a script. It's all this, there's so many sort of intricate subtleties that make it what it is. Um, and does that come from the, from well, the page? Well, first of all, what the first thing to say is, as a lot of people know, I don't have a script. There isn't a script. I don't write a script to start with. So that's not what happens. So there's no question of, um, the conventional thing of the actor reading the script and then, and this is what you're asking me, and then working out how to make the character, build a characterization around what's in the script. Because we don't start with the script, we start by creating characters. And we then put them together and explore relationships over a long period and build up relationships through discussion and um, invention and improvisation and research until we've got a whole world and then we go on location scene by scene, sequence by sequence and we build, we rehearse we, we bring into existence each sequence or scene 
in the location by improvising and then through rehearsal, scripting it through rehearsal. But it all relies in the first place on my having collaborated in a very detailed way with each actor on the character, the characterization, the whole backstory of the character, the whole world of the relationships between the characters and all the rest of it. Um, so in a way, the question about interpreting what's in the script is completely unrelated and irrelevant to what I actually do. So then the question, that would, your question then would become, what do we do to arrive at the character, the characterization? And I keep saying the character and the characterization because the character is the idea, the, the identity of the person and the characterization, of course, is how the actor actually plays it. I'm not going to, I can't go into this in a lot of detail, but basically one of the keys to it is that I start all journeys of creating a character by collaborating with the actor, by asking the actor to talk about real people they know. Uh -huh. And I then pick people and we, from a, often from a very long list, and uh, we distill it down and we finally build characters starting as a starting point with someone in the know, because, you know, like artists do, like painters and writers and other artists do, it's good for an actor to have a source to work from rather than just kind of to act in a vacuum, so to speak. So that's really how it starts. So we were able to immediately, we're making decisions about real people out there in the street as opposed to the, just functions of the actor's own ego or own... Mm -hmm. personality or identity to does that to any extent answer your question yeah thank you next <laughs> next Kristen hello Kristen hi Mike hi how are you today all right how are you good thanks I just want first of all before I ask my question I just want to say thank you so much for doing this I know a lot of people here I speak for everyone I'm sure been really looking forward to this today and they're very excited to have this opportunity so thank you but my question is well, I've got sort of a double barrel question I've been told by an actor or two that in the past as part of your audition technique you ask them to go and sit on a bench in Soho for a while so that you can watch them from your office window is that just a joke are you winding them up or do you do that for a reason and are there any other sort of maybe oh, the matter is I I, to answer your question, I don't do that. I've never done that. And it's, uh, it's Chinese whispers. My office is in Soho. And I nearly always have auditions in, in that room. And I do ask people to do something, to, to talk about someone they know, a real person. And then to, I ask them just to be that person naturally. I then ask, I say, I'm going to go out of the room and leave you to it for a bit. Simply so they can get going without feeling they've got to, perform and then I do come back discreetly and sit in the corner of the room uh, and I've instructed them very strictly not to come out of character till I tell them to and when I then invite them to come out of character we then talk about it and that's the audition it is never I have never asked anyone to sit in Soho Square uh, it's bullshit and okay. it's such <laughs> I and so whoever told whoever tells that story has got Soho into their and uh, into their head but obviously they weren't actually there they, they merely heard it fifth hand from somebody else who wasn't there um but so that's what doesn't happen and what does happen right. and okay. reason, 
And the reason why I asked them to do what I've just described relates to the, to the previous question, which is about get it, finding out who can, because some actors very naturally can play real people and be natural. And other people can't do anything other than themselves. And some actors can't not perform, not try and be interesting and deliver the goods. And that's, that's not helpful. No. Okay, thank you. That's really good. Thank you. Um, Louis. Hi, Mike. Thank you for doing this. Um, my question leads quite nicely on from that, actually. I was wondering what qualities you look for um, in actors when you're casting or, or, or collaborating? Well, when I'm casting, in fact. <laughs> yes. Um, well, look, um, I've already said it's about character acting. It's, you know, so there are actors, and I've said this already, there are actors who can naturally play people out there in the street, don't just play themselves. So the first quality I'm looking for is character actors, people who can do that. Uh, one of the most important qualities is to work with, find and work with intelligent actors. And you know, you're looking for folk that can, you know, can, can work together, can be part of a team, can, you know, aren't entirely motivated by uh, ego. Um, though all of us are a bit. Um, and those are the three main qualities, I would say, in a word. Great. Thank you very much. Simon Lex. Hi, uh, Mike and Charlie. Hey. First, uh, just thank you both very much for this opportunity. It's a real honour. Um, I've read, Mike, that you are really adamant about never calling an actor by the character's name. And firstly, is that true? But also, I'd like to understand your rationale for that. Well, there are two um, aspects of that. Um, and it's true what you say. I mean, uh, first of all, I, there's a general widely practiced convention in theatre, television and films for actors to refer to their characters as I when talking about them. I did, I did that. Um, I totally discourage that. No, actually, I actually discourage it. I ban it, basically. And I insist that you, everyone talks about their characters, he or she. Because my, what we do in my sort of work is to, is to have very long and sustained and real improvisations that can go on for hours and hours and really in-depth explorations of things. And it's important for the actor when the in preparing to do an improvisation or to go into a rehearsal situation to really take time to get into character, to stay in character, and then when it's over, to absolutely definitely come out of character. And if you don't, if the actor can't then be objective about what happened, it's very difficult to work um, constructively in using it and, you know, uh, creating material. So as an extension of that, uh, it's obviously natural that I wouldn't want to refer to the actor as the character, what call the actor by the character's name. The actor is the actor. I never interfere. Uh, some people have asked me in other places um, whether I do hot seating and all that stuff, whether I um, intervene and talk to the actors in character. I don't. If the actor, uh, the actor is in the world of the, of the 
that we've created. They're in that world. I'm in this world. I can observe it. But then I, there's no question of, of uh, blurring the boundaries. So it's unhelpful and uh, counterproductive to for the actor to confuse himself or herself with the character or for me to, to do the same by referring to them uh, by the characters names or talking to them when they're in character does that answer your question um it, it does partly i just wonder why you feel so adamantly that it's unhelpful to do so i've already well i've already explained that to some degree that you know, if you're really going to investigate situations in a real and thorough way, and sometimes it can be very traumatic, the actor has to be able to um, be totally in it when he or she is in it, but be completely out of it, be objective about it when, when that's the case. Um, that's the main thing about it. Also, I mean, like, um, you know, there is a con sort of... Uh, a convention that's slightly related to the method school in New York of actors on movies staying in character 24-7 in order to hang on to it, not to lose it. Now, sometimes I think actors are forced to do that because there's no structure or discipline in the work that allows them to do it in a more uh, in a healthier way. And when I say healthier, it is unhealthy to be in character all the time. Of course, it's more unhealthy for some characters because, you know, there are characters that it's just, you just, you know, they are only characters. And if they are, I mean, for example, if you take my film, um, Secrets and Lies, are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. um, where some people put a story about that Brenda Blethyn, who plays the main character, one of the central characters, um, stayed in character all the time. Now, that has to be bullshit, because if she'd stayed in character all the time, we never could have made the film. I wouldn't be able to negotiate with her to create the scenes and, you know, talk objectively about it. I'm sh I think that will answer your question. Mm. Anne. Uh, hi, Mike. Thank you so much for doing this. It's such a... Um, I have quite a big question for you. Um, what do you think that we as artists uh, need to be talking about in terms of the future right now? That is a very big question. <laughs> and it's such a big question. It's such a difficult question that I don't know that I know the answer. I am as um, stuck and as stymied as anybody else, basically. Because, I mean, you know... What, what sort of an art? Are you an actor or another sort of artist? I'm an what actor and a theatre maker. Yeah. You see, it's uh, our problem is how we can make our art work from a practical point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I asked you the question because you said artist, which is a very proper way of putting it. But of course, a painter or a novelist or a poet or even a composer or various other forms of artists can now carry on during mm. the crisis and nobody's stopping them. But, you know, as a theatre maker, you've got a problem. We've got a problem. As a, as a, I'm a sometime theatre maker and I, you know, um, it's hard to see how, we, how this is going to play out in terms of theatres. 
And as a filmmaker, it's also a problem because although there's all kinds of stuff being talked about, about practical ways of coping with COVID, um, for film, not for my kind of organic human contact location kind of film. So uh, I'm afraid that, you know, the only two sorts of answers to your question, apart from saying I'm no wiser than you are, are either on a practical level, which is, on a practical level, it's very hard to know what the answer is because we don't know. Mm. And on a, otherwise, we can merely be philosophical and optimistic mm. and have ideas and things. But, you know, in real terms, it's, uh, we're, given the nature of our art, we're stuck because of practicalities. And I'm sorry, I haven't got anything more illuminating mm. or profound to mm. contribute than that. Okay. Thank you for your question. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Dominic. Dominic M. Nice one. Cheers. Can you hear me, Mike? Yes, I can hear. I can see um, you. Hi, Matt. Um, so my question is: so when you're starting out on a project, how do you know when uh, you've got like a fruitful jumping-off point? How do you know when you've got enough? If you could answer that in relation to naked, even better. But in general, also good. Um, well, the question, it's a good question. Um, uh, the question, how do I know, is really one has to say, how does any artist know when, that, when you hit that? And, you know, because what I do with my gang um, it, it is very much doing what... Other sort of people, other sorts of artists do, which is to go on a journey of discovery to dis, to dis, to, to discover what the actual thing is. Um, you just kind of are looking for it, and when you know you've got it, you've got it. Now, having said that, I'll, I'll come back to being specific about naked in a minute. But having said that, um, one of the key elements, so far as I'm concerned that makes it all happen and makes, uh, and to some degree answers your question, is that because, as we were just saying when I was talking to Anne, um, because this is, because filmmaking and indeed theatre making is a practical business, I am blessed by the inevitability of deadlines. So, you know, we go into rehearsal for six months, which is to say, not rehearsing in the ordinary sense, but creating characters, exploring relationships, doing improvisations, research, etc., 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 talking the whole world into existence, etc. And sometimes people say to me, how do you decide when to start shooting? Well, that is about as silly a question as there is. You, don't, you can't decide when to start shooting. You can't on a Friday say, ah, I know, well, let's just start shooting on Monday and I think we should be in a house which has got, you know. Of course, I'll start rehearsing on the 1st of February or March, whatever it is, and I know that we're going to start shooting on the 1st of September, whenever it is. That is a deadline, and it's not just a deadline to be ready to start shooting on that day. It involves a whole lot of other deadlines that precede that, like discussing with 
with designers, discussing with the costume designers, discussions with locations, discussion with the cinematographer, being able to decide what it's going to look like, the feel of it, how to shoot tests, etc., etc. Apart from working with the actors and bringing it to a point where we are ready to uh, to start putting a film together. So the question, how do you know, how do you decide, which is what you're asking me, is to a considerable extent stimulated. They are, the process is stimulated by the necessity to be there on time to start doing it, basically. So you kind of, that helps you to have, have the revelations you need to have. Now, so far as trying to answer the question in relation to naked is concerned, um, My films fall into two categories in the context of what you're asking me. Um, most of them have been films where I haven't, not only have I not told anybody what the film will be, including the backers, we've said, we're going to make a film, give us some money and uh, we'll deliver you a film. Uh, by the way, that means that 90% of the time we get told to fuck off and 10% of the time we've made a film. Um, in the case of Naked, uh, it was so, so Naked is one of those films where uh, I had just some vague notions, very vague. I had some sense I wanted to do something to do with unacceptable aspects of male behaviour. On another level, I because it was 1992, I had a vague notion that somehow we might do something that had something to do with the impending apocalypse at the end of the decade, at the turn of the century. But, you know, but really... Um, it, it, it was about uh, starting to work with David Thewlis and starting to work with other, other actors and starting to just instinctively finding a way towards things in a kind of empirical but creative way. And it's hard to identify that in detail, but gradually, as you as with all um, artists in all media, as you interact with the material, because, you know, you put a mark on the canvas and that suggests to you what the next mark on the canvas should be. And then you think, oh, I know what this is. This is, you know, and that tells you what. So it's, a, it's, a, 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 it's a, an interrelationship, interreaction between the artist and the material. Um, I mean, that's putting it very simply. Um, and in a way, that's as far as I can go in answering your question. Of course, the other kind of films I've made are the ones where I've known, we've known what it's, I mean, specifically, obviously, my three historical films, Topsy Turvey, Mr. Turner and Peter Lou, we've known we are going to dramatise these events. That doesn't mean that within that we, didn't, we weren't very creative in characters and relationships, but we knew what we were making a film about. A couple of my more exploratory um, narratives, Secrets and Lies and Vera Drake, arose from a very specific agenda. Um, uh, Secrets and Lies arose from the fact that there are people in my family who adopted kids, and I decided to explore that. Although once I started to look at it, it was obvious that what was more important to look at is not so much people who adopt children, but the people who give them away and the experience of the person who is given away and is adopted. And Vera Drake um, comes out of the fact that I'm old enough to remember what it was like before the 1967 Abortion Act, when people had unwanted pregnancies mm. and people like Vera Drake were pulled in to deal with it. 
Um, and for about 40 years, I had this notion that I would at some stage make a film uh, that looked at all of that. But generally, it's, you know, an instinctive uh, empirical thing. And, you know, uh, as should be the case with a lot of art and creative activity, I mean, I, there are things in my films I could never have anticipated where you suddenly think, I know what this is, and it takes you into another direction. And that's, um, and, and Naked is, a, which you refer to, is a very good um, case in point. There's a lot of things going on in Naked over and above the, the, the rudimentary things that I mentioned a moment ago uh, on lots of levels. Brilliant. That's okay. a great answer. That's helped Thank a lot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Take yeah, take care. Uh, Joe Evans. Hello. Hello, Joe. Hello, hello. Uh, I was just wondering how you choose the final dialogue that comes from the improvisation. Well, um, that's a very good question. The truth is that um, it's not a question of, uh, it's not a matter of simply improvising and then saying, oh, well, let's just... uh, replicate that as it happened in the improvisation it's more complex and sophisticated than that so you know first of all there's a long period of lots of improvisations without worrying about what the final film is going to be and just creating that the world then as I said earlier once we get to the stage where we're making the film we get on location sequence by sequence I, I, at the end of the before we start shooting I do a very broad very rudimentary structure, has no dialogue in it, but it's a, a broad working um, premise so that we know we can make choices about what locations and so on. Uh, and the actors have got some sense of the shape of the journey of the characters. But really, to answer your question, what the dialogue and the action finally is, is not simply bits of replication of improvisation. So you get on the location, the actors have already spent time, lots of time previously knowing how to be their character and how to improvise in character. You then explore the situation through improvisation and say, stop, let's go back, let's reinvestigate, let's do that again, stop, let's take that, let's pin it down. And then gradually there's a pro- writing process where I might say, well, actually, why don't you say this instead of saying that? Or why don't, or what, I've just thought, why don't you add that? And, you know, or we, or we say, okay, let's re-explore that and let's take a bit out of that improvisation and add it to the... But what we're actually doing is not replicating the improvisations. We are creating something new, which we've arrived at because of the improvisations. Some of it is, sometimes there are things in which come, do indeed come straight out of the improvs, but often we've arrived at something new and different and more um, distilled and better written and things because we've gone through a process of combining improvising with writing, with rehearsing, with fixing it, so that what we arrive at is very, very precise indeed. So if you look at something which we haven't talked about so far, like Abigail's Party, which I'm sure you're familiar with, are you? Yes, yeah. Um, which you can it's a stage play, which you can see on, on its television version. And people still carry on doing it, productions of it in the theatre. Um, of course, you know, by the very nature of being a play, uh, it's very precise. Although 
the dialogue in 95% of any scene you may drop into in any of my films is just as precise. Um, but we've arrived at it starting with in prose, but gradually moving it. So finally you wind up with something. There are things in the scenes that bear no resemblance in actual terms to what things that happened in the impro, but that the impro has taken us on the, the, the um, sequential journey to arrive at something very precise and distilled. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, definitely. Thank if you. you look at the, there's a scene in uh, Happy Go Lucky where she goes for a flamenco class. Yes. The flamenco teacher played brilliantly by Karina Fernandez um, as a meltdown. Now, what's interesting about that, and the reason I mention it, is because Karina Fernandez is a brilliant character actor, and she did all the research about flamenco and the character, did the character and all that. We arrived at the location, which was incidentally in the Shoreditch Town Hall, and um, we had a scene which was a relatively straightforward scene about the. Um, flamenco class with the character she got the character it was a little bit edgy but you know and we then um did what we do we thought we'd fix the scene we'd had a re few rehearsals we got the scene we then showed it as this is standard procedure showed it to the guy to the cinematographer and the crew um so that we could work out how we were going to shoot it and then while the cinematographer Dick Pope was lighting the scene, which took quite a long time. We went downstairs to another space and we carried on developing the scene. And the whole meltdown and the way she cracks up and things actually came into existence while the scene was being lit. So it didn't even exist before, you know, we discovered it through a whole. And so when we came back and we ran the scene for, for the crew and things, they were absolutely astounded at what they were looking at. It was infinitely more interesting and more hor horrifying than, and funnier than what they'd actually seen previously. So we carried on working, and, and in a way, although that doesn't entirely answer your question, it, it illustrates an aspect of what I'm talking about. Yeah, that, that was a more interesting answer than my question, so thank you. <laughs> I think you, you underestimate how very interesting your question was. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Lovely. Cheers. Um, given the way that you've previously cast, yes. um, you know, having that communication with an actor and getting to observe them in a kind of non-performative way, um, do you think that moving forward under the current circumstances with kind of most casting happening through self-tapes, which are so sort of inherently artificial, do you think you might only be able to work with actors that you already have worked with for now? No, 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 no. I, I, I won't do anything unless I can do it properly the way I've always done it. I won't. First of all, just aside from your question, I am totally opposed to self-taping. I absolutely um, find it abhorrent. I have never, ever looked at self -tape, anyone's self-tape, and I wouldn't be... I wouldn't dream of casting anybody from showreels, which isn't the same thing. But, uh, of course, I'd rather actually meet people in, in a proper way. But self-taping is a horrible convention which has come into existence. It makes it... It makes... It, um, it induces a terrible kind of laziness on the part of people that cast. 
uh, they very often don't even bother to look at the damn things. But having, for asking an actor to do a version of what's in the script at short notice and try and deliver the goods is completely unhealthy and unacceptable. So I am totally opposed to the whole convention of self-tapes. I think it's disgusting. I wouldn't use it and ever to cast in a proper way by meeting people, then I won't do, I won't do anything. So I'm, I would not... I don't, but I think we will eventually get through all this and we'll be back to normal. So that's the way I look at it. Cool. All right, thank you. We'll go back to Michael. Thank you. Oh, I'm, uh, can you hear me all right, Mike? Hello? Yeah. I can see you and I can hear Hello. Really? Hi, how are yes. you? Uh, get on with <laughs> My question, um, what... What's your, what do you love the most about being a director? <laughs> um, I, I'm tempted to say something like the dinners. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what a question. I mean, like about the process of the whole, of the, you know, the whole thing. What, oh, your, I see what you mean. Yeah, you yeah. mean, ah, I see what you're, you're asking more specific questions. You mean, mm. which bit do I like best? Mm. Well, given I do this unusual thing, which we've been talking about, about being locked up in pre preparatory rehearsals for months, followed by the shoot, followed by the post-production, you may be surprised to hear that the bit I like least is the preparatory section. Because it's all digging around. There's nothing to show for it. All you're doing is preparing for what you're actually going to do when you do it. Mm. I love shooting, it's great. I love the crack. I love the whole thing of shooting. And of course, you are defining something. Every day, you're creating a bit of something which is tangible that you've actually created. So that is really stimulating. And I love post-production because that's when you put the film together and, you know, uh, you don't have to... Have, whenever you get into post-production, you've just spent months getting up at half past four in the morning and doing all that stuff. And post-production is altogether more civilised. But mostly, you are then really creating the, what is the film and working with a composer and doing all that stuff. And I love that. It's great. Um, uh, but, you know, the great thing about filmmaking is shooting film and being out there and working with um, not just actors, but when I work with um, people behind the camera who I've worked with for years and years, and we have a great relationship, you know. Um, what, what I don't like about being a filmmaker is the very, very, very long gap between one film and the next. I mean, it's, you know, it takes, apart from the time it takes to finish a film, you've then got to be involved with its marketing and all that stuff. And then you've got to raise money for another film. And uh, I mean, I have just, I, um, we were just starting to shoot Peter Lou three years ago, mm -hmm. which finished in at the beginning of September. And uh, it's taken all that time to deal with that and then to spend a lot of time trying to raise money, not very successfully. Mm -hmm. And it feels weird to have a kind of uh, a job creative job that you don't do very often really so that's the downside of it mm. that's all i have to tell you thank you uh, thank christopher pizzi is that better mm -hmm. 
Hiya. Um, yes. Uh, cool. My question basically is, I look back at the body of work that I've seen you do, um, which is fantastic. And it's always very visceral. And the environments you create, they're very, they're just, they're really on the nail when you look at Meantime, when you look at Naked, and you go through, and even when you go into Secrets and Lies, which is more suburban. I'm aware that your rehearsal process is six months. So when you're getting together with the designers and you're coming up with how you're seeing this world, how can you nail that down? Or do you nail it down? Or at what point do you have to go, this is the cutoff to make this viable to start filming in March with the improvisation where the characters are going? Is that, do, you, do you kind of try and yeah. lead the improvisation or are you completely open? No, it, it's, a, it's a balancing act. Um, obviously, you've got to make Often, I feel I'm, I'm obliged to make decisions really sometimes before I'm quite there. But that in itself is part of the creative process. This relates to an earlier thing I was saying about deadlines. The minute you've got to, if the, the, the cinematographer or the designer is saying, you know, we have to know by a certain date, we've got to start talking concretely about locations. Um, that in itself is a stimulus. That's, that makes me start to think about possibilities in relation to what's going on in improvisations. That is part of the creative process. It goes back to what I said earlier about deadlines. Mm. You know, uh, uh, um, I mean, you know, if you look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, for example, to, 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 to pick a random example. I mean, a good example. it's a good, good piece of work, you know. He did a good job, him and his team. Um, that ceiling is a certain size. It's viewed from a certain distance. I have no doubt that whatever popes were involved wanted it done by a certain date, etc., etc., etc. you know. Um, and, and uh, you know, and the, they had to do it lying on his back, you know. All of those things are practicalities which would feed back into decisions about what he actually was, if that makes sense. So yeah. in a way, it kind of, it's not, it really, in a way, I, I've already sort of answered this earlier when I said that, you know, some people think, say to me, uh, you know, how do you, you know, when do you decide when to start shooting? Well, of course, that's bollocks. I don't decide that that's already been decided. And if it weren't, I would go on forever and never produce a film, probably. So the decisions you're asking me, I mean, it's the same with um, the, the um, cinematography. You know, we, 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 we've got to um, decide at some point. I, I have to share. Usually I share with cinematographer, production designer, costume designer, and indeed makeup designer. At a certain point, we get together and we, I say, say naked, for example. At a certain point, I said, the way I'm starting to see this as it's evolving is it's, it's dark, it's monochromatic, it's a solo journey, it's quite nocturnal. Now that get immediately made us make decisions about the look, the colour palette, the kind of way that the film should be treated photographically. We shot tests and did all that. Um, conversely, when we made, when we were preparing Happy Go Lucky, um, it, it, exactly the same team I sat down and said this is it's about a woman that's full of life and full of beans it should burst with color primary colors mm. and that informed 
the decisions we made. Um, and then, you know, you start talking about, you think about locations. Well, we've already often, if for example, the location is where somebody lives, that's a function of what we've already been creating about, about the character. Because you, you've got to make empirical decisions. You've got to make decisions that you've got to take a gamble. Um, what we try and do, particularly if there's a chance for a domestic location, we try and say, well, actually, we will have one location that we'll have on the go throughout the entire shoot. So we can always go back to it as a main location or maybe two such. But a lot of locations, of course, there's no way you can do that. You, you know, you can only go in there for a short time and, uh, and it costs bread and all that stuff. So all of those things have got to be balanced against each other, but they are in themselves. And this is just to repeat myself that, that they are inherent. That is, they're part of the, all of that is part of the creative process. Yeah. There you go. I've got one thing to ask. In meantime, when they are watching the uh, flat being destroyed and they're running in and out, yes. was that a chance moment or did you plan that? No, it was a chance moment. Fantastic. Well, we we realised that they were knocking it, things down, so we grabbed the actors and we went in and, and we, um, I think probably, I don't remember, but I'm quite sure the guy on the uh, crane with the concrete ball on the end of the chain was probably slipped a few quid so that he did it when we were ready to do it. But yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we certainly didn't design and build a building to be knocked down. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for your question. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Marie Phillips. Hello. Um, could you please um, elaborate a little on uh, how the process differs um, when you're making a film where the story's completely from scratch and when you're working with existing historical material? Yeah, I mean, um, basically it's the same. Um, but if you take, I mean, if you take Topsy Turvey, for example, or indeed, um, or, or Mr. Turner or Peter Lou, where we had characters which were historical characters the first thing to do is to read and research as much as possible about the character about the, the actual personality so that we you know we are complete i and the actor are completely know as much as it's possible to know then it's a question of saying right let's find a way of bringing that person we've been reading about to life and then i would go back to the process i've already discussed where we're building characters from scratch. I said, okay, let's think of people you know, or people we both know, maybe, um, who we could, could possibly be a basis for, for, building a, for making a characterization happen. In any case, whether it's a historical character or not, I, these days, and have for a very long time, invariably, the final source, a character that we start with is drawn from three, usually two or usually three sources put together. So that's how we do it. So in a way, it's the same process, except that it's preceded by getting under our, into our bloodstream as much as we can about the person we're trying to bring to life. And, and but also how about the story? Because presumably with a historical story, the structure is a lot more defined in terms of, in yeah, I mean, well, terms of how you create the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's honestly no big deal. If you, if the job is to, discover what the story is by exploration, which happens with the, most of the films, that's one thing. But if you know that you're dramatising something that actually happened, 
then that's what you're doing. And, you know, look, here's the thing, right? Okay, um, this applies to any of the things, but say, in, are you familiar with topsy-turvy? No. No, well, right. I am familiar with Mr. Turner. <laughs> okay, well, in Mr. Turner, okay, there's a, fa- there's a scene, there are several scenes of famous events, but one of the very famous events that's dramatised in the film is when he goes into the Royal Academy, he sees Constable's painting that's all bright red, it's been put next to his painting, which is very grey, so he goes out, he comes back, and he puts a red blob on his painting and turns it with his fingers into a boy. Now, that actually happened. Right now, you can read about it in books. You can gather that it actually happened, but that doesn't make it happen in in three dimensions in front of the camera. You still got to make it happen. So you still got to have improvisation to explore it. Except that you are not having an improvisation to discover what might happen out of a million possibilities. You are looking to dramatise what you know happened, but in detail, moment to moment, you've still got to bring it to life. So the same processes apply. And exactly who says what? and all the rest of it um, uh, come into existence. And and in that particular scene, uh, what Constable actually said, he has been here and he has fired a gun, very easily that goes in. We already know Constable says that, so he says it. (laughs) So there you go. And I ask you to uh, make sure you see Topsy turn. I will. I promise I will. Thank you. (laughs) Chris Hawley. Hi, Mike. Um, hi. Oh, hang on. Yes. Uh, hi, hi, Mike. Um, later on this year, all things being equal, I'm um, uh, directing Abigail's party for the theatre. Where? Um, in Hampshire. We're touring around smaller venues in Hampshire with it. Okay. Um, one thing that my biggest <laughs> decision that I have to make is how faithful we are to the original characterizations i think especially the character of beverly who is um such an iconic and much loved character um whether to try and faithfully recreate what alison steadman did or whether to uh explore and try and find something new in that character what would you what would be your your thoughts on that i'm absolutely clear in my answer to that it's a play yeah got the script the last thing you should do is try and replicate any of the original performances. Right. I don't think you should deviate from the text. I no. think you should set it in 1977. Yep, you should definitely. have all the music that's specified and all the rest of it, which yep. you are obliged to do by yes. copyright. <laughs> but the last thing to do is to try and replicate those um, performances, those characterizations. Your actors should explore, if you actually explore the thing, um, creatively yeah. and intelligently and uh, appropriately and sympathetically, you'll find, I've seen a number of, a lot of productions and very diff- different um, interpretations of Beverly and the other characters. So right. I think trying to copy Alison's performance would be profoundly sterile and yes. counterproductive. And I would um, suggest yeah. that it would be the last thing in the world you should think of. And by the way, so would Alison Stedman. Thanks for that, Mike. Thank you. Lachlan. Who? Hi. Hello. Um, My name's Lachlan. Hello, Lachlan. It's nice to meet you. What do you want to know? Thank you. Um, Well, I'm curious, uh, 
you know, um, I, I arrived just as you were talking about um, how you how how you improvise uh, scenes and so on, and how the actors explore um, their, their characters to try and get you know to get to to develop an understanding of who the character is and and to to, to develop an understanding of the relationships and so on. I'm kind of curious to know, sort of taking it a step further back, sort of behind that sort of point to uh, to you personally. And, um, you know, do you kind of find that you have specific questions that you try to answer by making the films or specific points that you try to make? For example, you know, it, I mean, Peter Lou, I suppose it's, it's going to be less kind of problematic to kind of have an idea of what you personally are trying to get out of it. But it's still not, you know, you know, I'd be interested to hear your views, but 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 also with something like Nuts in May, which is which is such an organic piece. Um, you know, what do you do? You have perhaps on a subconscious level, or, or are you conscious of questions that you're asking, or, or, or issues that you're trying to understand, or, or you know, does, do, yeah. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Um, well, it's you know what, Lachlan, it's all of those things, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, how many of my films have you seen, do you think, about? Uh, I've seen Abigail's Party, Nuts in May, Secrets and Lies, Some of Life is Sweet. Unfortunately, it keeps getting interrupted. But uh, so it's, I haven't seen Turner or Naked. Because I was only going to say, I wasn't really um, wanting to... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's just that if you look at all of my things... Yeah. Although, uh, uh, on, it, on many levels, they're quite different from each other, and I try and do that. You will see ongoing preoccupations about how we are, how we live, how we relate to each other, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, I mean, one of the things that almost I would say inv- that invariably is lurking about there in all of my work is the whole question of. To what extent are we being ourselves? At what extent are we under pressure to be things that other people want us to be or that we, the society expects of us and so on and so forth? Mm. Um, so this is a sort of, a, by way of answering your question, there are ongoing preoccupations. As I've, I don't know when you joined in, but as I said a bit earlier, that certain films I've made like Secrets and Lies about, a, about adoption and Vera Drake about abortion, um, you know, was working out particular things about attitudes and feelings and ideas and um, politics, my political view about certain things, as is obviously the case with Peter Liu. Um, but even with Peter Liu, you will, and I think you said this, there, you will, there will be a complexity of things going on. I mean, what, one thing I don't do, for sure, and I've never done and don't want to do, is to make films where I leave you at the end in no doubt as to what to think. I much prefer to say, okay, this is it. There's a whole bunch of things on the go here. Now, that's the, I'm finished. You, you go away now. Ponder it, digest it, argue about it, reflect on it, say, well, what should have happened? What did I want to happen, et cetera, et cetera. And that is the way how, as far as I'm concerned, my sorts of films should work, as it were, politically, um, you know, socially. So, I mean, if I, th- I think I'm answering your question. I don't, I don't know whether I am, but um, 
uh, it is about teasing out some preoccupations and about, you know, as I said earlier, I don't know whether you were here or not, but I said, you know, you, you know, things happen and then I respond to that. I think, ah, that's what this is about. And, you know, and of course I'm making choices all the time and saying, well, actually, I don't want to, that's something I, I'm not interested in exploring. I want to go in another direction. And so it's about feeding into it. So it does that. So that's all I can say to that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Vincent. Hello. 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 <laughs> Hi, Mike. Um, hello from Australia. Yeah, but what's funny? <laughs> oh, sorry. No, I was just um, clicking away, and uh, um, but well, I've, I've just been enjoying your answers, and um, and I guess having a very good time here listening to them. So, anyway, I'll get to my question. <laughs> um, uh, um, so I've written it down. So it says, uh, given your unique process of improvising, rehearsing, and story, how much uh, do you find yourself constructing the narrative in the edit? And uh, how much, if at all, uh, do you involve the cast in this process, seeing as uh, you they were so involved in the initial stages? You mean, how much do I involve the cast in making decisions about the story? Uh, well, after, the, after oh, well, you've you, shot everything as well. Oh, you mean in the, in the post-production? Yes, yeah. Right. If at all. I'd, uh, well, um, the deal with, it, with actors is, when I ask an actor to take part in a film, except the historical ones, I say to the actor, please be in this film. I can't tell you anything about it because I don't know what it's going to be. We're going to find that out. I can't tell you about the character because you and I are going to collaborate to create a character. And this is the key to it. And you will never know anything about the whole thing except what your character knows at any stage of the proceedings. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they, it means that we can explore situations in great depth in a completely truthful way. Because in any improvised situation, the actor only knows what his or her character would know. So the actor has no overview no sense of the whole thing at all. That is our complete ignorance about everything else in the film. And very, and it, it's almost, almost universally the case that the only time, the time the actors, each actor finds out about the whole thing is when, that, when it's completely finished and we have a screening and we invite them to see it. So the very last thing that happens, Related to your question, is the actors being involved in an authorial decision about what is in the film? That is not their job. Their job is to contribute truthfully um, the way their contribution is through the character, not from an overview. So, in other words, it's not a committee job. So, to answer your question, no, they're not involved in the structure of the whole film. And no, they're certainly not invited to the editing to, to, to be involved in that. Um, it is not their business. Uh, they have made their contribution, and that is the end of that. Um, the other part of your question was, to what extent do we organise the structure of the film in the edit? Mm. And, well, uh, there are two separate answers to that. But the primary answer is no. On the whole, um, th what we shoot is fairly well organized and uh, as raw material and you know it, it's there to be put together as intended but 
The other answer, however, is that all films, all movies, irrespective, are finally made in the cutting room. That is what you assemble the raw material. And therefore, of course, in any of my films, there are examples of where we've said, actually, let's get rid of that scene completely. Let's, or why don't we make that happen before this happens? Or why don't we, you know, etc. Because that is in, that's, in the, that's in the nature of film editing. You simply, because again, it, the, 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 the raw material is one thing, but the final artifact is something else. Answer, that's the answer to your question. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you. <laughs> Just to check, Mike, are you still okay to run over? A... I'm, 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 I'm in the middle of Cornwall and I'm not going anywhere because there's nowhere to go. <laughs> Thank you. All right, let's uh, go for Christos. Hey, Mike, how are you? Good. Good, good. How are you? Thank you for your time. I'm very good. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask, um, so obviously uh, I'm quite new to writing I'm an actor first and foremost um, but I wanted to ask for your advice in terms of I've been writing quite a lot recently obviously with this lockdown um, and I've been doing kind of like the, the the normal way of script writing which is obviously writing the script um, and I feel like that that um, blocks me and I feel like with your style it's something that I would want to approach and do um, I've done a lot of devising um, in the past theatre I just wanted your advice what, what what would you say would be the best kind of advice for young young writers like myself well I mean uh, I, I, it's hard to answer your question for you because but what I would say is this what I do is pretty idiosyncratic and kind of mad and it works for me and what I do but you know writing a good script getting down to writing a good script that really works can't be improved on really i mean if you, you can write a script write a script um d don't be um distracted by anything i've been saying here if however you really have got the particular need or skills or comrades to do it with to get out there and collaborate with other people, which we know is hard at the moment in, in current circumstances, but that's, that's beside the point. But then that's what you have to do. But you only do that if that, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's like this. It's like if you were a painter and saying, you know, I've been painting, but do you think I should be a sculptor? And the answer is no, you're a painter. Unless you want to go and try sculpture, try sculpture. Mm. And that would be my answer. But you Nothing wrong with a good script. Indeed, that's what you should do if that's what you can do. Thank you. I mean, I guess, I guess my answer, my, my question was, was more about the ideas that you have, because sometimes I feel like the, I, I have ideas of yes. storyline, but there's a block in a way, because I'm kind no, of... No, I, I understand that. And, and, and as, somebody, as somebody who, I mean, I've written things in the past, written plays and things. And certainly, I think anything I've written is never as good as what I've done by working the way that we've been talking about. Mm. Um, well, I understand that block, but, you know, only that I can't, I can't advise you about that. That's something that you have to find your own way through. There's no, there are no, there's no um, wisdom from, from uh, up here on the mountain about that. You simply have to sort that one out because... You're the artist, you're the writer, you're the storyteller. Amazing. We're on. Catherine. 
Hi, can you hear me? I can hear you and I can see you. Nice to meet you. you um, my question is, when you're casting for a film or a piece that is um, filmed in a specific geographical location, do you prefer to look for actors that are native to that area, so their accents are more real, if you like, or do you just look at people's acting first, maybe people you know or who can deliver? Because based on the conversations about character acting, I was just interested on how you felt about native accents versus... I think the honest answer is both. Okay. Um, I, I've done work where people have played characters who um, didn't come from the same background as them and indeed not from the same regions. However, um, are you, you're an actor, are you? Yes, yeah. Are you, where are you? I'm based South Manchester, but I'm from Durham in the northeast. So right. no, I was going to say, because as you may or may not be aware, when I cast Peter Lou, yeah. um, which you've no doubt seen, um, the, uh, there was no question but that everybody should be from the north. Manchester, yeah, yeah, yeah. No actor who wasn't from the north stood a chance in hell and they weren't in it basically because it would have been ridiculous you know yeah, yeah. um but but um apart from anything else i i have often cast actors and this goes back to a whole lot of things i've said earlier here today i've often cast actors without really i mean there, i've cast people who i think ah this is a really good actor we can i can collaborate and we can create a character and we don't know what character we're going to create and sometimes we've created characters who absolutely came from a different background because that's what we we came up with uh, yeah. and we didn't know so it's it's varied actually between you know i've done a number of films in the north where they it was cast entirely appropriately and i'm a mancunian by the way oh. <laughs> actually i'm from salford um oh. <laughs> so, so you know i mean it, it's varied basically yeah um, and the extremist uh example which we probably wouldn't get away with now was when we did a play called goose pimples mm. which ran in the west end for back in 1981 anthony sure played a saudi arabian mm. <laughs> and uh, he's not a Saudi, he's a South African Jew. Um, but there you go. Um, and he did very well. I mean, whether now there would be trouble if we did that is a whole different discussion. But that's not what we're talking about here. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Thanks, man. Charlotte. Hello. Hello. Hi, Mike. So I, I live around the corner from... Uh, the Garden Cinema, which will hopefully be opening up very soon. I'm, and yeah. I'm excited for another uh, independent cinema to be opening. And I know you support independent cinema. Um, and my question I, is... I, I, and indeed, I have been supporting The Garden and have been to visit it. Yeah, I, I can't wait for it to open, hopefully soon at some point um, and I'm just wondering what your what films and filmmakers at the moment are getting you excited and making your heart sing and what do you hope to be then seeing at the likes of the Garden Cinema? Well I'm not going to answer the question about what films are making my heart sing at the moment because that's you know uh, uh, what are your favorite films question and I'm not going to answer that because when it, whenever you get asked a question like that your mind goes blank um, and mine just has. Um, 
So, and we haven't come here to do so. But I mean, the great thing about the garden, people who don't, people, everyone here doesn't know what we're talking about. It's in Covent Garden, on the edge of Covent Garden, and it's an independent cinema with two spaces. And the great thing about it is because the founder owns the building, uh, he's not obliged to do anything other than show independent films, and that's what he's going to do. Um, and as I understand it, he will do what such cinema should do, which is to show all kinds of new and old movies of all shapes and sizes. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Next. T-Y. For me, Ty. <laughs> Hello. It's Ty, not T-Y, but anyway. Hello, Mike. Hi. Um, so um, I wanted to ask, um, basically, so your way of working as we've discussed and lots of people have said is uh, pretty much the dream for most actors so in the industry as it is in my experience most directors working are very fearful of working with actors in that way they're frightened of improvisation frightened to trust actors to basically sort of do their job in a way and to collaborate so how as you see the industry now, how can we, or as actors or, you know, people in this industry, encourage people to have that bravery? How have you always had the bravery to do that? I don't know whether I know the answer to your question. So mm -hmm. I mean, as to what you very um, generously call my bravery in doing it. I mean, I said a few minutes ago to somebody who, the guy that was asking me about whether he should write or devise or whatever. And I did say to him, you have to remember I'm mad. <laughs> and uh, what I do is totally idiosyncratic. And that is the case. I mean, you know, but I've, I've chosen because it seems a natural thing to do over a very, very long time to be totally uncompromising about it, saying either we do it like this, I do this, or I don't do it at all. But that's, mm. but you have to remember that I, I'm a writer, director. I'm a maker up of stories. And it so happens that the medium involves, that I've evolved, that I've, that's come into existence, involves collaborating with actors because that seems to me natural since that's the medium we're talking about. But your question as to how to other people should do... How to encourage, I think, other directors to... You know, frankly, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name. Ty. Ty. How do you spell it? T-Y. Just Ty. But my... I don't know the answer to that because um, people will do what they do. I mean, and do it how, you know... Mm. I really don't know the answer. <laughs> okay. But what I, do, I, what I do think is that, you know, a good director and the history of the cinema, as indeed mm. is the case of the history of the theatre, you know, it's a good director, and there are thousands of good directors who do not use improvisation, and they get it to happen. And that's fine. You know, it's fine. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, in a way, your question is, Ty, how, how do we proselytise? How do we, you know, um, convert all these Philistine directors? <laughs> yes. to, to, doing something they don't do well yeah. we don't 
we don't and we can't and we shouldn't try, basically. I mean, there are some brilliant directors out there and there are some terrible directors. And there are some directors who should be hung, drawn and quartered. But that is, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, I mean, um, I've known, I've had quite a lot to do with student directors. And people yeah. say, well, let's, we'll try and do this. And, you know, some people can really, they can see how to, some people instinctively trust actors and understand actors and some people don't because they're coming at it from a different uh, starting point. I mean, I do think, um, this is a slightly different thing, I think directors who have got acting experience and understand actors, understand acting from that, from that experience uh, is a good thing. But again, I wouldn't dream of saying, all directors should have had acting experience because there are some very good directors who never acted to save their lives for a split second. So I, 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 it, your question is a good one, but it's a question with no answer. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Thank you. Adam. Hi there. Um, uh, Hi. I'm, I'm tempted to ask which director you think should be hung, drawn and quartered, but um, I'm not sure I'll get a, a, an answer to that. I, I was just wondering, there's a lot of humour in your films, even those where I guess the subject matter is, is dark or, or harrowing. Uh, and I know when I'm asked to improvise, my instinct is, is to try and be funny, probably unwisely. And I was wondering how tight a range you have to keep on the actors you choose to work on your films to stop them being funny or do you not well it's a very good question um and the answer is it's not straightforward at all um the point is this when you talk about when you talk about being asked to improvise and your instinct is to be funny i mean basically you're talking about whose line is it anyway you're talking about you know, you're talking about being asked to improvise in a situation where, you know, people are watching and you're being asked to come up with something interesting and come up with, uh, with the goods and to entertain. Now, with my work, and I, much earlier on, right at the beginning, somebody asked me that question about me um, watching people auditioning in Soho Square. And I said, you know, I asked an actor to be real not try and make anything interesting happen, just to be quite natural by themselves and just I leave them alone just to get into it. Now that is the very other end of the spectrum from stand up and be entertaining. So the discipline of the improvisations in all of my work is, it's, you know, the, the work takes place for a very long time with nobody else there except me and sometimes even I go out just to allow things to, to bed in. There's no, there's no, all those conventions of rehearsal where loads of people are watching is out of the question. Um, the rules for the actors in the improvisation is stay in character, only do what the character would do. Don't try and make anything happen. Don't try and be interesting. Don't try and be entertaining. Don't try and create dramatic material. Your job is only to do what the character would do. And if that involves um, apparently nothing, then that is going on. Nothing happening is something happening. So you get improvisations that go on for hours and hours and it's very very often in conventional dramatic terms. It's very unentertaining indeed and, you know, because it's real. So therefore, the problem that you're asking me about dealing with doesn't arise because of that's, that's not what we're doing. And so they never... 
It's never a question of actors trying to be funny or not trying to be funny or trying not to be funny. Uh, it's a question of being completely real and in real situations. Now, you also mentioned the fact that, in fact, in the end, there's lots of stuff in my films that is funny. But it's funny because it's real and it's come out of improvisations where nobody's trying to be funny. It's funny because it is funny because it's real. That is the answer to your question. Thank you very much. Thank you. Alice. Thank you. Oh, hello. I wasn't expecting that. Sorry. Thank you. What weren't, you, sorry, what weren't you expecting? Uh, to be the next person. All um, right. Hello. Um, as somebody who uh, acts a bit, writes and creates, I just want to say how deeply privileged it is to be able to hear you speak and everybody. Thank you. Um, I loved Secrets and Lies and Happy Go Lucky, to name two. I love the absolute drama, the total drama, theatrical drama of the characters, which is simultaneously also so natural, which is almost where I think the sort of genius lies um, in performance and play. Um, this is a question of curiosity. Um, when you meet your actors, how quickly do you sort of know that you can work with them? And, you know, once past the nerves, the acting and the ego. And from your experience, is this innate or is it something learned? Or do you as a director have to strip away the learning to get the purity that you get in your films? Well, that's... Um... Um, the first part of your question is how quickly do, do we... I know, silly question. No, it's not a silly question at all. Uh, not at all. I mean, I, I'm tempted to say quite often immediately. Like first impressions. Well, yeah. yes. I mean, it's not entirely true because obviously you get to know people and, you know, it takes time. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, just to part this, when I auditioned, the first thing that happens is you come and just talk to me and there's nobody else in the room. We just have a chat and it's for at least 20 minutes, usually half an hour. Um, mm. So that's important. Um, mm. I mean, uh, certain, what is for sure is that if it's somebody that I know, I'm going to know pretty instinctively that I don't want to work with them. But I, I probably spot that pretty quick, really. But mm. that's that. But then you were asking me, about stripping away just say that again i wasn't quite sure what i was about um i was saying from your experience do you often find that there's almost a natural ability in somebody to, to act rather than not to say that rather than that sort of very learned um oh, acting yeah, is sometimes I... unappealing or is that your job as a director to strip away no. and direct get the sort of essence out yeah, of somebody i don't like talking about stripping away i I know people talk about that in drama school contexts and things. I mean, no, I mean, you know, I've got a particular way of going about things and it takes sometimes take people a short while to get the hang of it. But as I say, I, I go to lengths to check out whether that's going to be feasible first. And mm. generally, you know, an intelligent character actors on the case, you know, mm. and because of the nature of what we do, which I've talked about at some length this afternoon, um, it doesn't really, I mean, if somebody having, despite all that, is simply in some way manifesting or relying on other conventions of acting, then something's gone very wrong. So it doesn't really apply. I can't really answer no. your question. 
that's okay i suppose it's really just uh, the best the things that i enjoy to watch the most are things where the i like woody allen for example i just love the sort of purity often and the drama of the character so it's yeah. So natural and yet and natural, yeah, yeah, yeah. So natural and yet so dramatic. I, I suppose I'm. Really, it was just a curiosity question. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amelia. Hi, hi. Um, so I'm 16 and I have um been in a film as a co-lead, and I'm I've got two minds about whether I should go to drama school or not. Um, when you're casting, do you prefer actors that have trained or do you not really mind um, way. well miss out let's miss out the second part of your question um which is to do with wh whether i prefer actors who have or haven't been to drama school the qu my question to you is why wouldn't you go to drama school what's the case against it well i'm just well obviously i'm aware that it's quite a lot of money and yeah, and I'm all, I also enjoy like the academic side, so I enjoy science as well. So I, I, I'm a bit oh, well, unsure. That's a, that's, a, that's a question for you. I mean, but yeah. what you're saying is maybe you want to go to university instead of drama mm. school. Well, I, that, that's outside my remit. I mean, if yeah. you go to university, that's your business. Yeah, the, yeah, if yeah. the question is, if you want to be an actor, should you go to drama school? The answer is yes. Right, okay. Definitely. Because the thing about drama school is, it's it, it's not that you're going to spend three years being told something you already know. You're going right. to spend three years in a in a um, a safe environment with a yeah. gang of other people that you mm -hmm. share the experience with to try all kinds of things and learn through that. So, if yeah. the question is simply should you go to drama school, the answer is yes, no okay. question. If the question is, should you go to drama school or university? That's your business. Nothing to do right. with me. Okay. Um, okay. As to the other part of your question, do I prefer actors who've been to drama school or not? Uh, generally speaking, it's good news if people have been to drama school. But I have worked with actors who, who didn't go to drama school and they were brilliant. Yeah. Um, yeah. The late, great Catherine Cartledge, who was in Naked and uh, 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 particularly in Career Girls, mine didn't go to drama school and it disproved any theories about people who should but mostly it makes sense to me um and i have mostly worked with actors who, have, who are trained basically mm -hmm. not always but i think it's you know it's certainly worth thinking about of course it costs money but then mm -hmm. so does everything why are you surrounded by so many hat boxes <laughs> it's my mum's studio she makes hats for a living <laughs> i just thought I'd, we'd all like to know that so thank you <laughs> Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's a few left. Um, Mike, are you good? To Absolutely, yeah. Let's flush them all out. Great. No, no one can complain that they were left out. Okay, thanks. All right, let's go with Sarah. Sarah? Okay, maybe we'll come back to Sarah. Uh, Neve. Hi there. Um, yeah, I was just going to ask, given some of what you said about modern um, casting practices, um, do you ever work with a casting director? 
Um, and if not, how do you sort of seek out new talent when you're looking at your films? I do work with a casting director. I've worked for a very long time with the, with what I regard as the best casting director there is, which is Nina Gold, who okay. is she has cast everything I've done since Topsy Turvy over twenty years ago, um, and she, if it weren't for her, I mean, she just knows the right people to bring in, and she helps me to make not to make the artistic decisions, but to, you know, move in the right direction. And she just lines up people and knows who are the sort of people to bring in and so on and so forth. So, yeah, uh, it's an essential part of the um, process. And um, I did, in the past, used to do it without a casting director. It was much harder to access um, actors than than it is with a good casting director. So, yeah. And also... When we've been making the um, period films, all of which she's worked on, of course, you know, when we're saying, okay, we've got to cast this character, this historic character, she'd read all the books and do all the research with me so she knows what we're looking for. So, yeah, yes. But remember the name, Nina Gold. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Uh, Jackie. Hello. Hello, Jackie. Oh, hi, Mike. Sorry, I just clicked on the wrong button, I think. Hi, nice to meet you and thank you, Charlie. Um, Yeah, my question was just, um, you've already, you've talked about how um, actors, you encourage actors to draw upon a real person to form their character. And I just wondered if you always encourage actors to just choose one person so it's less confusing, or whether they can be informed by two or three people, perhaps, if that felt relevant. I think you mentioned well, that something to do with Peter Lou, but I wasn't sure, so I just wanted to ask you that question. It's, first of all, um, no, in answer to that, there are two separate things in your question. Um, invariably, in all of the films I've done for a very long time, the characters are generally based on three people. But your question, your question is based on the premise of the actors choosing. The actors don't choose, I choose. But what mm-hmm. I do to start with is to encourage the actor to make a list of as many people as possible. And we then spend a long time, I, have, I spend a lot of time with each actor where they will talk about, in depth, about endless people they know. And I will gradually whittle it down. And I, because my job is the storyteller, I whittle it down and I choose which ones to, um, to, to use as the basis of the character. And don't forget, while I'm doing that with actor A, I'm also doing it with actor B and actor C and actor D, because right. that's, you know, I'm looking at possibilities. Um, so, so when I ask an actor to make a list of real people they know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's 10, 20, 30, 40. In the case of Naked, David Thewlis had 110 people he knew. Oh, wow. the, record holder, the record holder is Sally Hawkins, who had over 220 people she knew. Um, oh, gosh. Which, you know, <laughs> took a long time to whittle through it. Yeah, good job sometimes, you've got six months. Sometimes, sometimes an actor will, will... Some of the people on people's lists are people they really know about, they've 
knew very well or the, you know, and sometimes an actor will say, well, I hardly remember, I don't even know this person's name, but I remember this person. And, and, and occasionally it's happened that that's what I've gone for. You know, it, it's a whole creative process, you know. Yes. Oh, that's great. No, that's, okay. that's answered my question. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you very much for today. Good question. Thank you. Thank you. And um, Lachlan, last but not least, I think. Well, I wasn't expecting to get a second, so thank you very much. That's great. Um, I was, uh, you, you mentioned during the talk today that um, you, you, you had an exp a stale experience in RADA and that uh, I'm just wondering how much um, your experience as an acting student, sort of, how, sort of what you were looking for when you applied for that and when you entered into it, and then sort of when you came out of it, what, how much that informed your desire to direct in a particular way and, and whether or not sort of there's, there's kind of a point being made about this is actually how things should be done. This is actually, you know, um, you know the, the, yeah, I guess I'm almost kind of answering well, the question. That's what I, with respect to your question, that's why I've already said that. I mean, what, yeah. when I was a, a drama student, I mostly reacted negatively towards the kind of experience we were having. Um, so that pointed me in a direction. Um, by the way, I went into, I went to drama school on the acting course, knowing that I wanted to direct, by the way, and to write. Um, but I think I already, to be honest, I said that in my earlier reference to. Also, I have to point out that I did go and be a drama student 150 million years ago, when I was 17. So insofar as I knew anything about anything, um, etc. But thank you for your question. Right, there's just one more latecomer. Are you okay to? to... I am indeed. I am. Great, uh, Sanjay. Then, lastly. Hi, Mike. Um, question: um, When you've decided on a theme for what your next project is going to be. Um, Hearing about your sort of improvisation process, how much do you let it just organically go wherever it goes? Like, does it bother you if it you know, drastically changes what you anticipated the theme of your film to be? Or do you like to tend to bring it back to at least what your um, main idea for the theme you wanted it to be? Well, your question is based on the premise that all ideas are simple, simple, singular, fixed ideas. But that isn't the case. There's a difference between an idea, which is a concrete thing. Like, I've all, were you, have you been here from the beginning? I have, yeah. yeah. So if you remember earlier, I mentioned the fact that, for example, um Lies was about adoption and Vera Drake was about abortion. Mm. Or... We know that the historical films I made were about particular events. Um, but many of the films that I've made, I certainly had a, a, a sense of things, a feeling, a notion of, of possibilities. Uh, and that is the case for artists in all kinds of media, um, which is a different thing from a fixed idea. And anyway, as I've said in another answer, about something else, that an idea is only an idea. 
I mean, if we're talking about a film that's going to last for uh, two and a half hours or whatever it is, um, that's going to be a complex, organic thing on all, with all sorts of things on all sorts of levels. So it can't just be locked into an idea. You know, so therefore, to answer your question, it's very much, and I've already said this several times, uh, to be honest, um, it's very much about um, starting with a possibility, a sense of things, or several possibilities, and then, you know, taking from things that grow and feeding, taking from them and feeding into them and having new ideas and, you know, and thus teasing out what the original idea was or what the original idea then becomes in relation to other ideas and things. So it's not uh, as black and white as the premise of your question inevitably suggests. Uh, thank you. Okay. Mike, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for doing that. It's, thank, you. Uh, thank you, everybody.